1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where whenever I decide to sit down and record an episode of this podcast, I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutia that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker, your name indubitably is Barbara Bel and this week we are discussing no less than a queen, and uh, this is not a task to be done uh, solo, so I have brought upon in the details a guest, one half of the podcast that's spooky. Please welcome to in the details, Johnny. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Am I allowed to? Sp- oh, good. Oh, Thanks. How are you? Are <laughs> you allowed to speak? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just had to ask permission. Oh, that's so nice. There's never been rules here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's my Canadian nature. What can I say? That's right. Let's just start with that right off the bat, because I like to let it be known uh, far and wide now and forever that I just think Canadians are the bee's knees at a base level. Just great people. Um, Prove me wrong, but... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, and I don't think this is just a post-Trump opinion as well. I think I've always felt a sense of like, there's something about Canadians.
0: I don't know what it is. I receive that and I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, what is it about and you I people? I also kind of believe that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's the remote location, maybe it's the landmass, you know, adding on to that and having us so spread apart. Maybe it's just the fact that it gets so cold up here and we all have to huddle together. That's yeah, that's
1: poetic. That's deep. Yeah. 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 Cuz I well, uh, I lived briefly in Australia, which I do, I think is an American would say, "Oh, Canada, Australia, they're kind of like, you know, other different different variations on America, right?" Um Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, um, you know, no nuance. Um, and I didn't I like Australia a lot and I like Australians a lot. But it it wasn't the same. But at the end of the day, like after a few months, I realized we are so different. And they're that really? that perception is so off and they're great. But it was a very like eye opening experience about that, like American perception of our like, you know, sister countries
0: to- didn't it all start with potato jackets? Am I wrong? I
1: mean, yeah, that was definitely, that was a moment of, uh, that was a moment of awakening. Yeah, that was, uh, mm-hmm. or as they say in Australia, an awakening. And oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, the accents travel across podcasts. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Australia. I'd like to go back eventually, but it's like, it's an, it's a, I need to be able to afford the lie down seat if I'm going to go back
0: totally fair yeah Yeah, No. i mean if anything just put it on your vision board Mm. revisit it at a later date
1: i did not realize my vision board was
0: showing in the camera behind me Uh, i'm glad you saw that
1: um it's all right (laughs) i try to tuck that away before i record um no no judgment uh but all that to say that canada's a lot closer um are you whereabouts in canada are you
0: I'm currently located in Toronto, so kind of where people believe that Canada stops and ends mm. or starts and ends uh, depending on where you are. But I'm originally from Nova Scotia, so I'm kind of far out east. Oh, okay.
1: All right. I have like a very limited like Google Earth understanding of uh, of Nova Scotia, but it looks very um, nautical. I imagine a lot of yeah. windy coasts.
0: The province actually looks a bit like a lobster itself. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, and it is in nature very nautical. A lot of, you know, uh, basins, a lot of. Yeah, you know, just a, a lot of salty people, a lot of plaid. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I can get into that. All right. Yeah, I love basins and plaid and, you know. Um. I'm going to
0: regret that at a later <laughs> date. I just completely <laughs> reduced my homeland to nothing.
1: Well, I'm over here just like singing its praises. I'm like, guys, Look, Canada. It, it was complimentary. Yeah. That's all that I can say. I, I'm happy for that. I mean, if you can't read your country, how the hell are you going to read anybody else's country? It- amen amen speaking of which because it's requisite drag race canada is coming
0: hot takes it is uh i'm excited i've been hearing murmurs around toronto of who may be there and who may not Mm -hmm. uh i honestly can't remember that many of them and i'm kind of new to toronto too so a lot of it's just me feigning excitement Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know somebody will say and i just kind of get real insecure all of a sudden and go oh i should know who that is so i go oh yeah oh i can't wait to see them oh they're fierce (laughs) But right, right. the few that I've heard that may be on there that I recognize, I'm super excited about. Uh, and I just really hope that they kind of go all across Canada and kind of, you know, grab some drag that encompasses that because Canada actually has a pretty interesting drag scene.
1: Yeah, I um, I definitely know nothing about it, but I kind of take that it's just like this golden opportunity to like, I, I it, sort of a feeling I have about like this podcast as well as there's all these things out there that are like queens I haven't bowed to yet. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. things I haven't discovered that
0: I don't know that I love. So well, that's the thing. And a lot of people haven't even heard of Kent Monkman. Like, do you have you heard? Of... No. Okay, so Ken Monkman is kind of one of the biggest artists in Canada right now. Uh, They're indigenous, they are a queer artist, and part of their artistic expression, kind of like in the same vein of like a Marcel Duchamp, is this drag persona that is called... uh, Mischief Eagle Testicle. And they use Mischief in a lot of their paintings. Like they do a lot of these kind of classical style, kind of grand oil paintings uh, where they kind of take like classical, you know, tableaus and they queer it and they kind of look at, you know, you know, old war scenes through a different lens, mm-hmm. uh, but they also usually include this drag character in the painting itself, and they've done some kind of uh, installation pieces involving the character, performance pieces uh it's just it's really fabulous, so go check it out. Not enough people know about kent Monkman. yeah,
1: I mean, you know it's no beyonce mega mix, but okay, work you know what I mean it's yeah, like I feel like a lot of people fair enough. like no, I think that's great. I feel like that's um I don't know like that's at this point, maybe the. I don't know this is this is just kind of like a who knows if this idea holds water once it's said out loud but maybe the upside of the like oversaturation and mainstreaming of drag race is that like this other this quote-unquote other drag suddenly becomes of interest because oh i just want to see something other than a blonde bombshell lip-syncing to ariana grande you know it's like, totally is like is anyone else doing anything in drag you know like at some point people are pushed to look in, a, in another direction you
0: know Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm just really excited for Drag Race Canada in general because, you know, we have Brooklyn Heights on the judges panel, too. Everyone's excited about that. We love Brooklyn up here. Yeah,
1: I, you know, I was listening to her episode on Whimsically Volatile, which is uh, Katya's formerly, formerly Katya's podcast, now Craig's podcast. I don't know if you've listened to that at all. I used to when it was Katya and Craig. I didn't know Katya didn't do it she anymore. She just stepped down. She just, uh, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. And like the next episode was Brooklyn Heights guesting. And so I feel like that was very smart of like, okay, well, a lot of people are going to drop off, but then a bunch of people will jump back on for Brooklyn. Um, and she, they're like, get another blonde white drag she, yeah, queen. Yeah. Right. Really. Yep. Just kind of like, uh, interchangeable, I guess. But
0: throw them on the fire. Yeah.
1: I, I really, I'm, what I always appreciate with, uh, any of these queens, but Brooklyn certainly was an example of this, is just like it's like the fully human moments of like, especially like on a podcast where you forget that they're a drag queen and it's like, oh, you're just mm-hmm. you're just a queer person talking about your life. And I totally. when they're not on. Like I feel like I like I, I enjoyed listening to Brooklyn because it was like, oh you're not being, you know, uh blonde bombshell right now. You're being this very complicated man, you know?
0: I hear that. I actually had a similar experience listening to Roxy Andrews mm. on the Trinity, the Tux new podcast. Mm. Yeah. Oh. I was kind of like, oh, Roxy Andrews, I like you on radio. Oh, I, you know, yeah. after All Stars
1: 2, my feelings, like so many people, like my feelings on Roxy, I was just like, okay, I, I was wrong. You know, I get mm-hmm. it. Uh, I think, you know, it's sort of like what may eventually happen with Anne Hathaway. You know, we might come around on her fair enough maybe
0: um who knows who
1: knows i i there's this thing on amazon modern love it's this new series on like amazon prime i don't know i have no idea how it's if it's distributed beyond the u.s but um anne hathaway is in an episode of it and she is i came away from that episode thinking okay all right i'm gonna back off she's kind of great really yeah no i know trust me i know yeah that one performance just turned you yeah. around yeah yeah i was just like wow okay you you're really good at this so okay yeah um so anyway um i'll take it yeah yeah i put that out there as a little amuse-bouche um
0: yeah know what i'm ready to have my perception of van hathaway changed right?
1: i mean 2020 yeah. is like around the corner it's time to yeah. have hindsight you know um yeah, yeah. Out with the trump and with the that's right. that's right that's yeah. <laughs> right so twenty twenty. So with no with no grace in transition at all, because I don't believe in grace, you are of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one half of the podcast That's Spooky.
0: Um I am tell us
1: about that's spooky.
0: Well, That Spooky has been described as one part unsolved mysteries and one part sitting at a drag show with your two gay best friends. Mm. So basically my fiance, Tyler and myself every week sit down and we each cover a story uh, coming from True Crime Paranormal called Strange Phenomenon, like it could be a baby flying a plane through the Bermuda Triangle, mm. just anything that kind of makes you go, oh, that's spooky. <laughs> and uh, basically we break it down and we explain our respective topic to the other one and We do a little part of the show called Spooky Gay Bullshit, where we talk about all of the uh, topics that are happening in the world that range from the creepy, from the politically bullshit, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of topics. And then we also just break down stuff that pertains to queers. So, yeah, we just uh, we have some fun and it's a good chat. Yeah. Like it's not too formal or anything like that. And uh, yeah, if anything, it brings some uh, queer voices and queer perspectives to, you know, true crime and paranormal and stuff like that, which is usually pretty hetero right yeah Yeah. a lot of true crime describes gay relationships as lovers you know they'll never like (laughs) at least growing up for me like you watch cold case files things like that so you know if anything we just try to bring that perspective in like uh, one of my favorite episodes, we talk about the death of Nancy Spungen and kind of talk about uh, the reputation that she got mm-hmm. and kind of how, you know, it was celebrated when she was killed. Whereas Sid Vicious was, you know, immortalized as this amazing, you know, martyr for punk where he was a guy that in actuality, like, was known for, you know, killing cats in front of people and beating people up randomly on stairways and treating everyone like complete pieces of shit. So, yeah, we just kind of look at those narratives as well. Yeah. and. Yeah, have some fun with it. Yeah,
1: I love that. Well, and I and I I love what you said about like you know when it, keeping it un- informal and it's just a conversation. It's like a it's like a lesson I've learned from podcasting is like don't you're you're not doing this American Life. People want to hear two interesting people or two people who manage to sound interesting. Just having a conversation. I just want to hear people have a conversation about something I'm interested in.
0: Well, and that's the thing, and especially, like, when it comes time to talk about, you know, things that involve true crime or paranormal, usually when that stuff is produced, it's always so overproduced, Uh and it's, you know, you hear somebody walking up to, you know, somebody's house that they're going to interview, and you hear them describing poetically the scenery, the Mm -hmm. crunching of feet on leaves, or, you know, you tell ghost stories, and people are talking— people talk and you hear you know like creaking doors and wind over it and like that's cool that's great it sounds wonderful but that's just not what we're here to do yeah
1: Um, like I'm glad someone else is doing that because I'm sure a lot of people want that but I I totally believe in the idea that and maybe this is just because I'm doing a lot of podcasts and like kind of investing a lot of energy into it that the if you stick with it either as a listener or as a creator, like the real thing about podcasts is like the community and the audience and the connection. Like that's really totally, that's kind of the glue to it all because it's like, I, To me, I would think, oh, my God, week after week of just hearing people recap an episode of Drag Race, it's like, okay, guys, at some point in year two, this gets old. But if you, like, connect with those people and you like to catch up with them each week and you, like, identify with them, then it's like, oh, okay, then I get it. Oh, yeah, of course, I'll be back every week. And so, like, remembering that that's actually what's more important.
0: Completely. Yeah. And like, we have a great community of people that have kind of coalesced around the podcast that self identify as spooky bitches. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been it's a great experience for a lot of people who have reached out to us and said, you know, hey, you know, I always thought that I was kind of alone, you know, when people would talk about, you know, true crime, for example, and really, you know, mythologize someone like Charles Manson, you know, blow them up to be this, you know, complete demon when really I think he's just a sniveling, boring white man who thinks he's magic. Right. And, you know, they feel very validated in hearing somebody else actually have that outlook and not just lean into, you know, the mystery and kind of pageantry of it all. So it's been good in that way, too, because, you know, that's kind of where the fiber of the community has come from and people just kind of saying, thank you for seeing it the way I do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's that idea of like, I, of yeah. like oh, okay, you you see something the same way I see it. So, mm-hmm. okay, great. I'm not alone here. I think, yeah, it's just, you know, it comes back to that basic human thing of like,
0: you know, putting out the, the sort of bat signal of like, does anyone else see this? Totally. Well, I mean, that's how I found you. I mean, I was an all right, merry listener. I came into that through Grizzly Kiki. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, then I branched out into in the details and all that kind of stuff. And I reached out to you ultimately uh, through Instagram, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, you know, Johnny as well. And, you know, just kind of gave praise for the show. But, you know, like we ended up having a chat. And look at where we are. We're crossing country borders. I know. I know. I know. This is, I mean... We're bridging gaps.
1: I, I almost looked up what time it is in Toronto <laughs> right now. Um, really? Well, I did earlier, just to make sure. But I was pretty sure it was the same time zone. I, you know, I... Yeah,
0: I did. No, I did. Oh, it's totally fair. I thought fair. it
1: could be an hour behind. I don't... Mm.
0: Look, you never know. I mean, even within your own country. I don't blame you. I don't judge. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. I feel like um, it was the same thing of like, oh, you get this reference? And I feel like gays, I don't know, for me... I didn't grow up playing sports, big surprise in terms of a queer narrative, but I feel like I did spend a lot of time cataloging and mm-hmm. just accumulating information about movies and actors and actresses and a lot of horror. Like so much of it was horror. That that then be Oh, I was there. Right? Like that then becomes like the the thing. Like that becomes like the thing of like this is what I have to offer. These this is what I am interested in and would love to find other people interested in. And it just um I feel like it was something I learned at a young age and I've like spent now
0: my adult life kind of turning into like a real thing, you know? I totally hear you there. Yeah, I mean, like, I grew up in Nova Scotia. So, you know, I was uh, the one goth kid at my school for the longest time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used the internet in a lot of ways to kind of, like, connect with people. And, you know, like, I learned to make websites. But also just look up stuff that was outside my own hometown and kind of go, like, okay, there's somebody out there that, you know, kind of gets what I'm saying. Like, I remember learning about Bikini Kill in the seventh grade Mm -hmm. through the internet and going, what the fuck? That's like I, I loved punk, but I never saw myself in that whole world until, right. you know, I saw Bikini Kill and was like, "Oh shit, yeah, no, they feel just as alienated as I do." Right, right. Um, so, yeah, no, I totally hear you <laughs> there. Be- oh, of course, Sorry, I have a wiener dog. I have a, <laughs> I have a dachshund named Fleetwood, and he's very vocal. He just turned four. Oh, so, well,
1: that's yeah. I mean, that just comes with the territory of podcasting.
0: He's just decided to blossom. Yeah. <laughs> But essentially, before I was rudely interrupted by a wiener dog, uh, I was able to kind of find – oh, my God, now there's the... a baby crying in my hallway. Oh, I thought it was a this? cat. Wow, that's – Oh, no. I mean – Oh, I hear the baby now. I haven't seen that baby. Maybe it's half baby, half cat. I mean, um, that's spooky. There's a couple <laughs> – yeah, Geez, yeah. No, get my pen out. That's my next episode. Um no, but at the end of the day, you know, like I was able to kind of find that community online and that was kind of big for me and helped buoy me through my early teen years. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I find that now I'm kind of reconnecting in that sense. And yeah, in the same way, finding community as an adult now through my work.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Online. Yeah. yeah. And
1: it's like, oh, wow. And it can be about like weird, nuanced actresses from the 70s, you know, like that can be a connecting yeah. point, um, <laughs> which I guess is a transition into today's topic. Um which of course It's a beautiful transition. Well, thank you. This one a little bit more graceful than the last one. Um so onwards and upwards. But we are, of course, here today to talk about one Miss Edith Massey. And uh this was your suggestion, and I can't thank you enough. I was aware of her I'd seen I'd seen Female Trouble before like years ago, and I was familiar with the egg lady. How can you Yeah, not be? right, yeah. right. Like I wouldn't have gotten that scout badge, you know? Um so but it was like revisiting her and like just putting like the magnifying glass on her. It was like a whole new frequency. So Completely. I am I before we dive into Edith Massey and In Female Trouble and Beyond, I'm just I'm keen to under to know your um your history with her and with John Waters and just with that um that
0: magic. Well, John Waters to me was something that was introduced to me by You'll probably identify with this to a point. Uh, Do you remember when you were a teenager and you had these, like, straight male friends that you really wanted to impress but you didn't realize you had a crush on just yet? Yeah, I need you to get out of my house, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so... Yeah. So basically, uh, hey, Rumi, (laughs) I had this friend who introduced me to pink flamingos, Mm -hmm. and it was just through clips. So I saw a few scenes from that, and one of them included Edith Massey. And right away, my antennae went up, and I was like, who is this woman? Yeah. And it wasn't until years later um, when I finally dove into the world of John Waters, kind of on the prompt of RuPaul. Like, I had remembered seeing it throughout my childhood. All that kind of stuff. And like, I think everybody remembers at some point crossing a VHS of pink flamingos Mm -hmm. and being like, who is that drag queen? Mm -hmm. But yeah, once I dove into the world of John Waters, that's kind of when I got reacquainted with uh, Edith Massey in her various roles. And uh, yeah, so John Waters for me was somebody who I was always aware of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually it was him getting replaced with uh, John. Oh God, who is that guy who did uh, like the teenage movies in the 1980s?
1: Oh, uh, Teenage Movies. Oh, John Hughes.
0: John Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. So... I always kind of knew him because I would mix the two up, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know that much about John Waters. I dove in, and again, it was one of those moments where I went, oh, you see the world kind of how I see Mm -hmm. it. Not to the same extent because John Waters' movies are, you know. Yeah, yeah. there's A a bit of a metaphor. (laughs) Right, right. right. But (laughs) yeah, no, I I completely loved it, though, and I completely identified with it, and I watched them whenever possible. In fact, the first time I watched Pink Flamingos in entirety, I was in a rideshare, and I wasn't really exactly aware of what I was in for, so I was in a Toyota Corolla, with five other people who I didn't know oh or four. <laughs> we were on our way from Toronto to Montreal, and I was watching it on a laptop and, you know, had headphones in. And then once I got to the point where they were whipping the women in the basement, I kind of went, mm, maybe I shouldn't be watching this in a car full of women who don't know me. Right, right. <laughs> so turned that off and, you know, rediscovered. But Female Trouble specifically is actually the movie that uh, my fiancé and I watch every year on Christmas.
1: Oh, oh, I love yeah. I... Oh, I love that. Now, that is a
0: tradition. That is, yeah. oh, dawn on Christmas. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, no, it's like how, if people can make Die Hard a Christmas movie, I can make Female Trouble a Christmas movie. Thank you very oh, much. Oh,
1: yes, exactly. I feel like there's those sort of like Christmas adjacent movies. I feel like Home Alone is like a Christmas adjacent movie, but I don't want Home Alone to be the only example I have that isn't Die Hard. Yeah, Female mm-hmm. Trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, working into your holiday, you will feel much better as a result. And yeah, I would say The Female Trouble probably has become my favorite John Waters movie. I'm sitting next to a poster of it right now. Um, But if not a John Waters movie, one of my favorite movies in general. Yeah, so, I mean, that is, I mean, what is it? What do you think, having seen
1: so many of his movies, having kind of done the homework, kind of Mm -hmm. looking back at it, like, what is it that makes Female Trouble kind of rise to the, the top for you?
0: Well, I think out of the John Waters movies of that time that kind of have Divine and all the Dreamlanders, I think Female Trouble, and like John Waters says this himself, technically is kind of the most digestible movie or palatable movie to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, Like at this point in his production, you know, arc, he knows what he's doing and he's got, you know, the pieces to put together and the cast kind of knows how to act on camera a little bit better. Uh, But even technically outside of that, I think what really does it for me is just the story the irreverence I think the fact that I can throw it on at any time no matter what mood I'm in and have a chuckle Mm -hmm. there's great writing in it um and at the same time like I, I love John Waters. I love, you know, like I can dive into that whole world, but I can rewatch it and not have to watch somebody eat dog poop every time. Yeah. You know? So that's yeah. also the part of it too. Like <laughs> it hits the same notes as pink flamingos, right. but if you don't want to watch two people have sex with a chicken between them or other things like that, you can just enjoy a movie like female trouble. And I mean, female trouble gets twisted as fuck, but there's also a really queer component to female trouble that I really love. So it holds an extra special place in my heart for that reason.
1: Yeah. Oh, I get that. Now I have, I, have, I, I I say this you know, head hung in shame, I haven't seen pink flamingoes in full yet. Oh. I know. I so there are these gaps in the catalog that like there's things I've seen that I multiple times that I don't need to see and mm-hmm. will never serve me in any way. But you know, like uh, it takes two with the Olsen twins and Kirstie Alley. I've seen that movie so many times. It's get into it. Oh, I mean Kirstie Alley in that movie is a a drag influence that nobody's recognizing. But yeah, Pink Flamingos. I don't know why I've seen Desperate Living. I've seen Female Trouble. Mm-hmm. I may watch Polyester tonight. I just feel like i'm waiting to meet polyester oh yeah you should definitely dive into that that's a fun one um but i hear what you're saying about just from like what i have seen and like what i do know about john waters like i i know about the chicken i know about the poop um Mm -hmm. but i I, there's something that feels kind of quintessential in a way about female trouble that it's hitting all of the kind of like this is everything that you would almost like expect from a john waters movie and then still want to see more
0: Totally. No, I completely hear that. And that's the thing with, uh, you know, Pink Flamingos. Like, I don't mean to be blasphemous on an episode where we're talking about John Waters. But, like, ultimately, if you never end up seeing Pink Flamingos, I think it's fine to see the greatest hits. It is one of those movies that at times can ramble a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way that, like, an Andy Warhol movie that, I mean, those were unscripted. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those can ramble a bit, too. So, you know, if you haven't seen Women in Revolt, like, I don't blame you. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like that's a that's an acquired taste but yeah that's the thing i i feel like you can kind of rest easy having not seen pink flamingos yeah. you know yeah and, and you saw female trouble yeah female
1: trouble i feel like yeah. and and you know still got desperate living and i love desperate living i mm-hmm. i love just the, the the suburban melodrama of the first like 10 15 minutes it's just mink stole just giving me everything i want it's like mink stole before tony collette was in hereditary you
0: know Oh, my God. That's so astute. Right? Yeah. No, I, Mink Stoll is actually so perfect. And that's kind of the beauty of Mink Stole. I mean, when you think about it, like among the cast of the Dreamlanders, she is such a kind of classical actor yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Whereas everybody is so, you know, either coming from the experimental theater world or just being picked off the street. Mink Stole was actually kind of that. She was very normal. Like she worked a nine to five job. Yeah. Like while she was doing uh, Pink Flamingos, they shot that, I think, over six weeks. So she had to work an office job and wear a wig to cover her fire engine red hair wow but you know like she always had aspirations of being like a classic you know actor and she actually ended up doing it really i mean yeah mink stole's had a fabulous career outside of the dreamlander you know films that she was a part of yeah there's something about mink stole like i mean
1: i i've seen serial mom like that's probably the john waters movie i'm most familiar with and mm-hmm. she is so good in that like she just like i feel like on all right mary like kind of every time like in the on our like patreon episodes we talk about like you know just queer movies queer adjacent movies and inevitably every part of the conversation is like who would you play in this movie like what would you know who's the character you want to play and it's like that's the one i want to play i want to play mink stole's character i want to i want to be that before i want to be beverly you know what i mean? I totally hear you there. I can understand. I see you as a stole yeah. in that situation. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I
0: just, I want to be dragged out of a courtroom screaming, you
1: pig fucker, you know, like. That. Oh, my
0: God. I think if I were to be somebody in Serial Mom, I would probably be L7 featuring as a Moose Knuckle. What was the name? Was that the name of their band, the band? that they performed at the house in?
1: Um, I don't remember the name of the band, but I very much remember that. I, yeah. That, yes. Um, yeah, I'm L7 in the situation. <laughs> yeah well at least we don't have to fight for the same part which is a relief um Uh, fair enough yeah Yeah. yeah. um so uh so let's talk about uh let's dive into female travel travel yeah trouble let's do it i feel like edith massey and let's dive into female travel let's try that again edith you know um
0: so let's dive into female trouble (laughs) yeah
1: no totally sorry i'm gonna try not to cut you off as much as no I no, no that is no that is fine i grew up in new jersey i live in new york it would feel weird if you didn't cut me off you know okay yeah
0: we can just keep cartwheeling into each other yeah. i love yeah, it this yeah this is how
1: i live my life it's been 34 Licks years going strong yes yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> paula abdul with a bowl of soup i have to thank you for that i use that so much in my everyday life uh- <laughs> God, I have stolen that <laughs> from your hands and you didn't even know it. Oh,
1: I'm so honored. Yeah. That's and that's like from the yeah. That's from like the first episode of Alright Mary. We recorded that on a potato and two strings. I mean, I know. It, I'm there. I listened to it in a soup can, so I'm right there it with you, it. It balances it out, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. um yeah. so, uh I kind of feel like mm-hmm. Paul Abdul with the bowl of soup is very much describing Edith Massey um in yes. in The Black stretch onesie this this iconic like uh, halloween costume drag look tuesday afternoon at the supermarket outfit um the moment we see her in the movie like the first time we see her is Mm -hmm. sitting in the mirror caressing her breasts just feeling her oats this is an iconic entrance i forgot about this moment
0: it really is no and it's just unabashed self-confidence from moment number one yes like there's just nothing but her lotioning up
1: yeah yeah and i i and i feel like what's interesting about that is that she i don't know how much she knows that she's performing this unabashed self-confidence versus it's accidentally
0: finding its way through Well, it's interesting with Edith Massey because in the kind of history of her and John Waters' movies, she's always had a little bit of opposition to her costumes. Like, John Waters tells the story of shopping for her bra and corset and pink flamingos and her kind of being very insecure about having to wear that on camera. Mm. And the thing is, like, Edith Massey, you know, had these very human reactions, but when the camera turned on, she just completely threw that out the door. And that's kind of the beauty of her. Actually, John Waters, uh, he kind of sums her up perfectly in this quote where he says that she's the one character that he uses that never threatens the audience no matter how bizarre her character
1: oh i yes yes i you know it's funny i was like thinking about her even like in female trouble and just like the fact that she's yeah she's never i mean she doesn't you know she has a rough go of it in the movie but i feel like i always I always like her. I I never I know she's supposed to be the villain, but I mean yeah. Dawn's also kind of an anti-hero. So I'm like even though she threw the acid, I'm like,
0: yeah, but Well, it makes sense to be siding with the hero in this or siding with the villain in this case, because John Waters did specifically write Edith Massey this role to be a bad guy because she had been such a good guy and you know, neutral in her previous roles. Mm-hmm. But in a John Waters movie, it makes sense to side with the villain. That's kind of the point of what you're doing. Right. At no point are you not supposed to side with Edith Massey in this role. Yeah, like I guess if you can compare
1: it to um, the the guy who rapes Don Davenport, uh, I forgot his name, um, Earl Peterson. Earl Peterson, of course. Like when you con- yeah. when you kind of do like the the diametric opposition of Aunt Ida to, Aunt Ida to Earl. It's like okay, well he is disgusting he's awful like he is so like deliberately in the other direction of like you are just completely put off by him and i think that's like i'm never put off by anida
0: No, and that's kind of the thing. That's the charm of Edith Massey. And I feel like John Waters was aware of that. And that's kind of why he could push so far with her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the joy of watching her perform is just at no point is she ever self-conscious about herself, you know, in this diamond-cut, laced-up black bodysuit that she's wearing.
1: Right, yeah. And, And I, like, then, like, when it comes to the dialogue, which is obviously so, like, sort of thinking about Serial Mom and the way that over the years John Waters has, like, softened all of this, like, high satire messaging into his dialogue or just like gotten actors mm-hmm. like Sam Waterston and Kathleen Turner who could perform it softer. But I, I love that Aunt Ida is this kind of, um, satire slash queer activism of like, Oh, if only you were gay, like saying all of the things that so many people were saying to their gay kids at the, at the time about being gay.
0: Totally. And it almost feels in a way like you're watching like, and I hate to get like all uh, theater history on this, but it's almost like this old kind of agit prop drama, you know, the agitation and propaganda drama mm-hmm. of, you know, early 1900s, where somebody would turn out to the audience and be like, my God, the world we live in, right. don't you know, and, you know, like every time that aunt ida speaks in this movie you kind of have that tone about it so it's got this almost kind of like alienation like this again theater history this brechtian kind of alienation effect to Mm -hmm. it
1: yeah yeah it's like all of a sudden i'm not i'm not watching dialogue i'm watching like a message being presented here of and completely and like sentences that are i mean it's sort of like uh in theater when there's just like you know that a writer has written an applause line they've practically scripted in pause for applause
0: well and john waters would actually sit in the booth while this film was touring around and he was doing press for it and he would always listen for this moment and that's how he could kind of get a temperature reading for the audience and figure out how many queer people were in it because he kind of wrote this piece you know to get that reaction right 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 yeah.
1: Um, I mean, obviously, there's the infamous line of, like, the world of the heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Um, mm-hmm. I am particularly obsessed with this, it, you know, micro moments and nuances, the way she hits the word life. It's this, like, life. It, it's it, – it's and, and, the, and the camera zoomed on her face. Her eyes are just, like, googly-eyed throughout the sentence. It's, it's a sentence that is iconic for the delivery of it in as much as the, the content itself. <laughs>
0: Completely, because at this point, she's begging Gator to, you know, hook up with a gay man and, you know, not pursue these women that he's interested in. And, you know, she's saying, like, queers are just better. I'd be so proud if you were a fag and marry a nice beautician boyfriend. I'd never have to worry. Like, yeah, it's just this beautiful moment where John Waters is essentially flipping the conversation that queer people have had with their parents over and over again yeah. and just putting it in Ida's mouth. And I just think, like, the sentence, queers are just better. It's like, well, I mean, yeah. like... <laughs> but <laughs> well, And then later on, she says, like, you can always tell, like, I knew Gator must have been queer because if they're smart, they're queer. And if they're stupid, they're straight. Yeah.
1: And, you know, that that clip in, and everything about it, the way she moves her arm when she says it, those those pretzels, everything about that moment watching it, I feel like this was take 26. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what I love about
0: it even more is like, oh, man, I want to see the first 26, 25 takes, you know? Oh, my God. Well, and the thing is, Edith Massey was known for having so much history. Like, you can tell I just read Shock Value a few months ago. Oh, Um, Yeah, it's John Waters' book where he kind of breaks down the filming of his few stuff in movies. Yeah, no, it's a great book. Check it out. But essentially, Edith Massey, when she was acting, she would get so wrapped up in trying to learn the lines that she would end up, like, remembering the stage directions Mm -hmm. and reciting those as well. So I can only imagine on, like, take 13... You know, she's sitting there going, and if they're stupid, they're straight. Edith picks up another pretzel. <laughs> right, right, right. He was very meticulous because, like, a lot of people watch these movies and they go, "Oh, this must have been improv,"ed but none of it was. Like, he was very strict about his dialogue.
1: Yeah, and I feel like I that makes sense to me. That I, I feel like what he was doing, and again, this is kind of like a retrospect look at it, kind of after the fact, and all of the influence that it's had. It's like, no, this was definitely all being done very much on purpose, like. This isn't all just sort of accidental magic that's being captured, and that's what it feels like.
0: No, they would rehearse the hell out of everything and then basically replicate what they did at the final rehearsal on film. Wow. And yeah, John Waters was very prescriptive when it came to all that kind of stuff. Right.
1: The magic of that is that the fact that it still has rough edges, like that's mm-hmm. kind of like what I think looking back again, looking back at it is like what I, this wouldn't, Female Trouble wouldn't work for me if it had lots of really great shots or, um, you know, it has these moments of like cinematic just like brilliance. Like when Dawn is um, running down the the street past all the shoppers and she's just kind of like posing and strutting and the camera is just tracking along with her. I mean, that's that's just like a great shot. That's just a great moment of a movie. But totally. I love that there's other scenes that are just like when Aunt Ida throws the the acid in her face. Then you just kind of see Edith just kind of walk away, you know, like the the, the yeah, the, very pedestrian. Yeah, like okay, I think I'm done. I'm gonna leave now, and that makes it. I
0: like it more because of that, you know. Totally fair, yeah. But at the same time, knowing that it was so meticulous, because I mean, even that street scene, I think they drove around all day trying to film that. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't getting the right reactions. Oh, wow. In fact, there's uh, lost footage where Divine was attacked by a few homeless people. Uh, yeah. Wow. That happened. Wow. So, yeah, no, that's the thing. It's like, again, like, I always approach this being like, oh, this is so loose and fun. But it's like, no, nope, this was... Very planned out by Mr. John Waters. Yeah.
1: I mean, oh. it's because I guess there's like the perception that like, well, eventually he became a legitimate filmmaker and made like the polished, you know, um, yeah. you know, 90s movies. But it's like, well, they probably just got more budget at that point, you know. Basically. Yeah. yeah. I would I, I will forget later if I don't mention her now. There is a woman at the salon, um, Sally, the one who kind of looks like a bit of a um, bloated and homeless Elizabeth Taylor.
0: Yes, she was Divine's body double in the go fuck yourself scene. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, I, she was like, uh, it was like, that's who I want to play because I just want the opportunity to say, well, throw a goddamn penny in a goddamn fountain and make a wish and maybe it'll come
0: true. I mean, <laughs> oh, she's perfect. And she's got that something about Mary, like yeah. just spike of hair going Right. Up. I mean, it was just, I, I, I'm always here
1: for an eccentric older woman. And so the fact mm-hmm. that I'm getting more than one in a movie is
0: really. Oh, especially when they have a snappy tag for the end of a scene. Mm -hmm. Please give it to me.
1: Oh, I just, I want a compilation of that, you know, just snappy tags at the end of a scene by a distinguished older woman.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Right. Why isn't that a category at the Oscars? Right. Right. Like,
1: do I need to do this by myself? You know? (laughs) I think you do, I think I do. I think I do. Um, I am also, I'm a huge fan of, I mean, this is sort of, it's moments that, again, look amateurish but it makes me think of this interview i saw with edith massey where she says you know well i've i've had no training i never went to school for it but you know i try and i think of that in the scene when she's screaming on the floor after gator leaves and just this is so much to me edith massey just
0: giving it her all oh my god yeah like hey siri play moments of pleasure by kate bush like (laughs) what is happening in front of me right now
1: (laughs) right right
0: it yeah no that is and the thing is about that moment that is just pure existential meltdown coming out of edith like
1: yeah just grabbing at the hair gnashing of the few teeth
0: yeah just throwing the set at the proscenium of the theater (laughs) You know, turning lights on, facing the audience, just blinding them Mm -hmm. like, fuck everybody, Edith Massey's here to play. No, that moment where she believes that gators left her to go follow his happiness or no find his happiness in detroit working in the auto industry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she just can't take it and i mean this also means like in this moment if we want to zoom in on this this is the moment where she realizes that she has lost gator to the world of heteronormativity yeah yeah you know? like nothing like, it's like he's going into the auto industry in detroit yeah yeah, I mean, he was working at the lipstick beauty salon. Like she had all this hope, and then it's, she's just completely crushed. And even as he leaves, it's so pedestrian. He's just, you know, like see and Ida, bye. And she's rolling around on the ground, pulling out her fried blonde hair. Oh my
1: god! I mean, that the fried blonde hair bears mentioning again. I mean, it's it's such a it's. It's such a look that I mean, I feel like when people think of John Waters, they and they often think of like divine in pink, in pink flamingos, in that sort of cover art look. And I Mm would, I really want Edith Massey in the black, you know, uh, tight onesie, ripping out her blonde, you know, fried hair. Like,
0: I want that to be right next to it, you know. Completely no, just up in the hall of fame. Yeah. rolling on the carpet in front of that red vinyl couch with those black and white cushions. Oh I love that couch, by the, the way. Couch, just yeah. with spiders all over her tits. Oh. Just <laughs> feeling <laughs> Got to roll dread.
1: Yes, there were there yeah. were so
0: many spiders all over her tits, and I appreciate that reference. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I think that apartment did have a lot of spiders, though, all to Yeah. <laughs> it was an abandoned—all of those uh, indoor shots were done in, like, a dilapidated, abandoned apartment above a friend's shop. Wow. So, wow. yeah, I'm sure there were spiders all over her tits. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just can't seem to give that. No, up. no, I am I am yeah.
1: glad. Like it was once once season three of Dragular was over, I was like, Well, where am I gonna go with this one? You know? <laughs> like
0: how do I <laughs> You're go on the road with <laughs> yeah. it? Haven't you ever seen Showgirls? Know, My God. Right?
1: <laughs> oh God, I'm just like yeah. thumbing it in a cowboy hat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking for your luggage. Right. <laughs> Throwing fries. Um so... <laughs> Showgirls. Now that is a nuance. Oh damn! Yeah, that is
0: that goes different places. Oh my god! Uh, Yeah, Um, Yeah. uh, those lipstick nipples. (laughs) Those lipstick nipples. Puppy Chow. I mean, back to Edith's Lipstick nipples. I mean, that might be the title of this episode. You know,
1: really? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Why not? You know? Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Throw a name on it. Why not? Yeah, lipstick nipples.
1: It's been it's been said. All right. I'm gonna get a lot of I plays in this episode. Yeah. Okay. Great. So long as you, <laughs> as long as you're on board with that. Yeah. 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 I can't
0: wait for my mom to see this pop up in her podcast feed. <laughs> Look, it's a very, it's very fitting for an episode about a John Waters movie. Exactly. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Yeah. We need context. That's great. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. There's this one shot. I can't remember what Taffy is saying, but it's while Ida's still in the cage, but Ida is kind of nodding along like, sympathetically while Taffy is like, a, you know. Uh, bemoaning the, the pains of her life and it's there are these moments these like micro micro moments with Edith Massey where I'm like that is a brilliant choice whatever you just mm-hmm. did there is such an interesting like a method actor wishes they thought of that you know totally and I feel like in what that shot, in that moment it was, it was somewhere in that shot I I feel like it may have been when she was saying that like when she was saying how she couldn't free her or how she didn't have any food. There was just this moment of her kind of, you know, uh, I think it was right before Dawn got home. Um, and yeah, there's just this one shot of, of, you know, a sort of close up of Aunt Ida's face. And it's that's it's similar to that moment where like the world, the heterosexual heterosexuals, uh, a, uh, uh, that line, the rest of the line. Um, the same <laughs> way it zooms in and her face just kind of like, you know, moves around like a, um, like a dancing daisy. Uh, It's that same thing, but there's like this moment within that where it's like I feel like I can see the acting choices you're trying to make, Edith, and some of them are working
0: totally well because I think Edith the person knows what it feels like to be hungry and you know Mm -hmm. in a situation that's not of her control she grew up in an orphanage and ended up being really mistreated by the family she was put with and ran away and became an actor Mm -hmm. so well and actually she didn't even become that she ended up uh, working in a bar after you know working at a kiosk for a while in LA Mm -hmm. and ultimately uh, went between bar to bar throughout America grifting like getting guys to buy her drinks and then stealing their wallet and stuff like that uh, but she ended up moving to baltimore and you know just opening up this shop but or uh, working at a bar and opening up this kind of thrift shop called Edith's Shopping Bag. Mm -hmm. But she, you know, she lived a very kind of nomadic life for most of her, you know, existence. So I feel like those moments of character kind of come through. Yeah. Where it's like you can see her connecting the dots and kind of connecting it to her own experience. And I feel like that's almost what you're speaking to.
1: Yeah, it's almost like the benefit of her not being a trained actor is that her instinct is just to go with like, well, what resonates for me? And and to go with those like almost just organic, Responses.
0: Completely. Well, and I feel like that's the beauty of the scene when she's rolling around on the floor, you know, mm-hmm. in complete meltdown, because that's real. Like whatever she did to bring herself to that moment, like you almost feel uncomfortable because the camera stays on it longer than it should but then you're also just like, am I supposed to be watching this? Like this l- looks like someone actually having a fucking moment.
1: Right, right. It's like, it it, it very much, I mean, it, because every episode of In the Details has to talk about Tony Collette and Hereditary. It just takes me to that scene where she's like, crying on the bedroom floor in in child's pose and it's just like should i be watching this should i this feels very personal and completely fair yeah um though i mean but it's the edith massey version of it oh my god that's the beauty of this edith massey in hereditary
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my god edith
1: massey doing the i am your mother monologue i mean that's
0: why not? Why not? Why? No, just Edith Massey gripping at table, screaming, "Oh my god!" Oh my god. god! I those teeth just pointing at everyone in the room. Everyone is just implicated. Using them, yeah, exactly. <laughs> those teeth, um, yeah, those teeth. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, and I don't mean that in a mean way. No, like everybody's on their own dental journey. Uh-huh. Like, hey, I had a gum infection two weeks ago. We couldn't do this podcast. That's right. I was on the doctor put me on Percocet. It was so bad. Like I'm not judging, yeah. but damn, just like I got a, those teeth are they, like a fine wine. Yeah. But she's not ashamed of them.
1: No, they, yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like they are, um, they are sort of this, it's like Lauren Hutton's, uh, gap tooth, but like times a thousand, yeah. you know? Well,
0: and somebody actually said in an interview, like somebody that knew her that she had three teeth, but she took care of those teeth. Like they were, you know, the most beautiful thing in the world so that's also kind of i feel like a beautiful metaphor for edith massey in general
1: you know yeah yeah exactly well i you know i i saw this other like clip about her um and it was something i think made in the 70s it was like an evening um uh i guess evening some sort of evening news show and it was some segment about her and i think kind of the framework of it was people know her as, you know, Carlotta, and they know her as this, like, you know, mean villain, but, she, you know, it turns out she might actually be nicer than you think. And then they have just, like, the loveliest interview with Edith Massey where she's sitting behind the counter um, at her thrift store and just being so sweet and just so gentle. And, like, there's cats in the scene. Like, she's she's talking about how much she loves animals. And, um, and, it's, and it's all, like, yeah. totally pure, you know?
0: Well, and she would hold court in that thrift shop. She would actually keep it open until midnight so that people could just come from the community and have a place to hang out and stuff like that. Like, I think there's an old news thing where you could see people, like, getting into a fight in the store. And she's just kind of sitting there going, everyone, everyone, it's all right. There's no need to fight. (laughs) You know, cool as a cucumber sitting behind her desk and her bow up. But, yeah, like, Edith was just, she had this sweetness and a sense of community around her. And, you know, it was just nothing but good came from her. And I feel like that comes through so much. And I feel like that's why you root for the villain, you know, in female trouble because yeah. it's just this sense of goodness that comes off of her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like her, her inner Edith just like shines through. Um, Cause mm-hmm. yeah, John Waters had said in this clip, they had then an interview with him where he said like, Edith Massey is almost too nice. Like she's just, there's no, uh there's not a mean bone in her body she means nothing but good in this world and i think it's very easy especially i mean these are not you know i wouldn't say these are hollywood celebrity interviews but it's very easy for people in like entertainment interviews to say oh my god they would say oh he's such a generous actor oh she's just i mean you know and it's just like fuck off and totally you know and it's all fake but i feel like this is like and kind of going back to that that sort of the magic of Edith Massey is like mm-hmm. this is not a performance this is this is what it is and like it she's not faking it and um she's not apologizing for it
0: no and that's the thing and it's not about how much she you know shares the stage or you know really dives into the work <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. but <laughs> it, yeah, it's just about that happiness to be there and i feel like that's also what makes some of her lines so I mean, I hate to just throw the word around, but almost like iconic in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, and even some of her throwaways, like there's this moment where it's when Dawn first discovers that Taffy has, you know, taken Ida's ball gag out. It's when Taffy's mm-hmm. right, when Ida's in the cage mm-hmm. and Taffy, or I, Dawn comes in and is basically like, what the fuck? And puts it back in. But before she does, you just hear ida say under her breath you filthy hetero stink shit yes
1: yes yeah i love that and i i love that sense of like here's edith massey coming up with like filthy things to say or trying to remember the things john told her to say you know totally just cobbling (laughs) every swear word together that she can yeah um i know i love that pig fucker shows up in this movie and then in serial mom i love that john waters has been loyal to pig fucker (laughs)
0: Oh, my God, completely. I also love in this same scene, uh, like before, you know, while Taffy and Ida are connecting, Taffy is offering her food and she's like, do you want some eggs? Yes. And Edith has this great moment of, you know, saying, no, I want meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that that great moment of like, that's
1: the sort of like, you know, listening for the queers, you know, like, oh, did the queers get the joke?
0: Did they laugh at it? Okay. We've got a good audience. Yeah. Completely the relationship between Taffy and Ida is really kind of interesting because both of them are kind of under Don's thumb in a different way. Yeah, And ultimately their storylines end with this kind of fuck you to Don. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so there's something so interesting because we kind of build up to that. And when Ida looks at Taffy, she doesn't see an extension of her captor. She Mm -hmm. sees this kind of different person. And I kind of feel like that's that the niceness of Edith Massey shining through almost like in this character, Mm -hmm. because she even says like when, you know, uh, Taffy is about to release her. She's like, you know, Oh baby, like I'll buy $5 worth of incense from you. Mm -hmm. Like at no point is she like you bitch, get me out of here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like at the end when she says, Oh, I will, I'll go to the police right away. And she's saying it the way somebody Says something when they don't mean it, but then you realize this is just Edith Massey acting. She she, Aunt Ida is really going to go to the police. Like there is, she's not going to double cross.
0: Yeah, no, she does everything in earnest, and I think that's the beauty of her. Like, not a lot of lies come out of her mouth in this movie, or any at all. I think.
1: I think only. I mean, in the end, I she tells a variation, I guess. Oh yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but I mean, it's for a good cause. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like whenever I do one of these deep dives into a movie or an actress, I'm like, okay, well, what's my homework? Like, this is the start. So I feel like my homework is certainly uh, Pink Flamingos, but I feel like it's polyester. I feel like that's a
0: healthy next step. Totally. That's one that I haven't uh, kind of dived into as much as I should mm-hmm. have, but I, I've always remembered enjoying it. I think I remember
1: seeing when I was a kid, probably I don't know, like 11, I don't know, some age where like... Did not understand what I was seeing, but it was on TV for some reason, and I was flicking through the channels, and I just have a memory of Divine in a pantsuit, having a meltdown, probably, like, sticking her head in the oven, and not understanding why this was happening, and it's, like, it has been, like, burned into my memory, and so I feel like watching it is, like, coming home to a very old memory, and, like contextualizing it totally fair no yeah
0: no i had the same kind of connection with it because i was just always like oh that's the moment, with the foot stomper right like that was kind of my entry point to it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah there's just that thing where you're like i don't know what that is but i know i need
0: to see more of it completely yeah no i think that definitely would be a good next step for you okay good homework yeah right i
1: know rough life yeah um yeah Yeah. (laughs) forget that (laughs) math homework yeah Yes. So, <laughs> um, fuck high school. Uh, I'm just gonna eat a meatball sandwich. You know? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah,
0: I'm gonna go smoke uh, in the girls' room, please, Inks. I, uh.
1: That that is the other line that I love of uh, in terms of not non Edith Massey moments is just that girl saying Don Davenport's eating a, a meat. What is it? A meatball hero is that what she calls uh,
0: it. Uh, Don Davenport's eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. <laughs> I. That's. Uh, Oh my I God. want a tote no, bag the, of that. Oh, you should make one. I know you make tote bags. I do. I do. Don't I play like you don't. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. the The machine is
0: sitting over there, being like, "Girl, yeah, dust me Fill off, me up." Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. please. No. That's the thing. There are so many good quotes in this movie. Like, there's one that Tyler, uh, my podcast co-host and partner, always repeats, where Divine says to Taffy, "Why can't you just sit there and stare into the air? Isn't that enough?" <laughs> When basically she's like, I give you everything you need. What more? Like, you got food, you got a bed, you got a rope, like, whatever. Right, you have a rope, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I I
1: feel like I need to find opportunities to say, oh, Ernie, have another pretzel, for Christ's sake. Like, I just...
0: Oh geez. Well, and can we talk about Ernie for a moment? Yeah. Yeah. Ernie. Yeah. Well, he's got that great line where he offers, he says to Gator, like, Oh, I can get you a job down at the baths, Mary.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I love these like 60s, 70s depictions of like the the like uber queer, you know, dandy totally. man. And it's what? I feel I feel like it always is this like afro and 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 glasses for some reason. I don't know why yeah. that's the look.
0: Oh, it's gay Bob Ross all the way. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, and then I love it because Gator then, like, threatens him, being like, you know, get out of my face. And he says to Ida as he's leaving, he's like, no, gay knots for me, Ida. The best all, or uh, at best all you've got here is trade. Oh, yes. I felt like I was being, I was
1: like, oh, receipts, this, like, you need to know where this music is coming from, you know? Exactly. Yeah,
0: call Ross Matthews.
1: We got (laughs) some references. (laughs) Right, right. It's that same feeling of watching Paris is burning and being like, oh. Oh, so this is basically, like, the ingredients to every pretty much every reference RuPaul's making in the first few seasons of Drag Race. Got it. Oh, completely.
0: Well, I mean, even with the beginning of this movie, like the Cha-Cha Heels, like, mm. yeah, no, the first time a lot of gays see that, especially now, I'm sure they're going, oh my God, that's it. Right,
1: right. And you know, I I will say, to divert us into Drag Race, I feel like, maybe not the John Waters challenge on a whole, but the Katya and Kennedy Davenport Cha-Cha Heels section, I think... Katya in particular, I think, nailed it. Like, I think nailed everything that
0: is supposed to be a John Waters challenge. Completely. Well, no, and that's the thing. She got that kind of after-school special quality that the mother has. Yes, yes. It was so perfect. I mean, in a different kind of Katya way and, like, in a different cadence. But she got the essence of it. and It was so much fun to watch. And even Kennedy. I mean, Kennedy didn't know what she was, you know, <laughs> mimicking. But she gave it. <laughs> She gave she she knocks that tree on the top. Yeah. (laughs) No, exactly. Yeah, Kennedy Dawn Davenport, yeah. God, Um, and that scene in Female Trouble where she knocks the tree on top of her mom. The thing is you don't get to see in the movie, but initially there was a bit more buildup to that. So there are some deleted scenes where Dawn gets expelled from the school mm -hmm. and comes home and her parents basically give her like They just read her the night before Christmas. So when she's waking up the next day, like this kind of adds into, you know, her whole story of being like rejected by her family, told she's too fat and that her hair is too high and all this kind of stuff by her mother the day before. So, yeah, no, it's just it's such an interesting little scene. Yeah, I feel like that that sort of
1: it sort of justifies in a way because in, in the cut now you're like, man, Dawn just fucking goes for it. She's just a jerk. Yeah. And
0: the first time that I saw it, I remember having this feeling that you almost have as a kid when you like listen to metal music for the first time. And you're like, <laughs> I feel bad for watching this. Oh my God. Like yeah. you have this sick feeling in your stomach
1: yeah yeah like oh this is not being nice yeah oh my god
0: it was the moment when my sister paula moved out of the house and left her copy of the black album by metallica and i was like what is this unmarked cd right I put it in the player and enter sandman started playing and my stomach dropped and i was like i love it right but i didn't know what the fuck it was you know oh
1: god i know yeah. i know that feeling i know exactly what you're talking about where it's like for me it would go soon to the territory of like is this like like, is this, like, something underground that I've discovered that, like, now I'm in danger? Like, like not realizing this is, like, a mass-produced CD that you could get at, like, you know, Sam Goody, you know? You're like, uh, am I in a
0: gang now? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, I'm already trying to figure out which earring to put in the ear to denote that I'm gay. And totally. now, what does this mean?
0: Yeah. You're like, do I fill in my teardrop tattoo or not? Right. Like, how do yeah. I move forward with this? Right.
1: And can I use a Crayola washable marker? Or you know, totally.
0: Like, will my they God. know? Yeah. I wasn't ready for a face tattoo at eight, but here no. I am. But yeah. here I am. You know. Yeah. And, just and in they female trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> Funny enough, along those lines, this movie was originally supposed to be called Rotten Mind, Rotten Face. Oh. That was what uh, John Waters was going to call it.
1: Wow. I mean, I I love Female Trouble as, as the title. I think that's, mm-hmm. I, I think you nailed it there.
0: Well, it came from one of Dawn's Bad Girl, uh, you know, posse members. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was Cookie Mueller who played Concetta. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had gotten really sick while the movie was being, uh, like, produced, basically after they shot. And... She John, you know, visited her and was like, oh, why were you in hospital? And she was just like, oh, just some female trouble, hun." And he ended up calling the movie that because, if anything, he thought that it would make people think that the movie was about periods. Yeah. And make them want to come. Right, right. Wow. Wow.
1: Yeah. And I, I yeah. feel like the like, sort of, like, poetic context of, like, female trouble of just, like, um, or even, like, it, it being that, like, she is, um, it's, like, gendered trouble. It's like, oh, here comes trouble. Here comes female trouble. Oh like, God. it's. Well, wow. and that song at the beginning of the movie,
0: oh, that Divine know. sings. Oh,
1: yeah, where it was like when it started, I was like, "This is a this is a choice," and like about ten seconds before it says, "like performed by Divine," I was like, "Is this other?" Like it was like I think I liked it more
0: once I knew Divine was singing it totally that's kind of like earl peterson where like the first time i watched the movie i was mm. like his voice really sounds like divine and then once i understood what was going on i was kind of like okay this seems a little bit more watchable too because i kind of know what's going on right right once it, you understand the artifice of it
1: yeah and you realize what they're doing it's like oh, okay i don't feel i don't feel so like gross about this i mean like you know uh any more than I should you know with completely the, with with the back of the underwear view oh my
0: god <laughs> fuck, and the penis that they whip out later as, oh that uh, thing gives me nightmares oh my god
1: oh my god it's just it's just the saddest penis uh the saddest penis i'd seen all week yeah it's
0: the saddest dirtiest penis yeah no yeah. completely Wow. <laughs> <sighs> and i'm i remember the first time i saw that i was like or Not the first time. Once I understood it was Divine, I always thought, wow, I really hope that wasn't actually Divine's penis.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that, of course, always becomes the question is if there's the close up, it's like, okay, so is this like somebody in the group who's like, yeah, I'll do it. I don't care. Is this, you know, like that's uh, that's what I want to know is like because there's two penis close ups. I'm like, whose penises are they?
0: Totally. Like, can we get Interpol on this? Whose penis is that, please? Yeah, right, right. Oh, Interpol. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, that's really good. Wow, that's my penis location service right there. (laughs) You're welcome. We're international. What? Yeah. God. (laughs) We've just we've just started something here. (laughs) Look, I'm here to both start and end things. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, accomplished. Look, and speaking of uh, things that resemble genitals on the subject Mm. of female trouble, I can't believe we've been talking about this this long at the, I was about to say this again, at this point, and we haven't talked about Mary Vivian Pierce's wardrobe storyline. Like, speaking of genitalia, do you remember where she's dressed like a pristine white silk vagina for most of the movie? I guess it is a vagina. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean that's to me that goes back to that like oh well women can't be drag queens it's like well yes they I mean like all you know all the women in this are drag queens including her and her the completely. most
0: completely yeah no and she has such like I don't know she looks brilliant in them like at some point I wrote down that she looked like a thrift store Art Nouveau print mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah like I feel like it it makes me think of um, it's sort of
1: adjacent to those like 1920s uh, like framed, um, like, French ads
0: that people have in their dorm rooms or things like that, you Totally. Know? Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah, no, there are grapes in the corners. We know where we're at. Yes, yeah. there are grapes in the corners. Yes. It's looking like a tarot card. I love yes. it. Yes. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, Mary Vivian Pierce in this movie is just perfect. She, like, the Dashers in general, like, she and David Lockery, mm-hmm. they're, they're a fascinating little uh, sub-story in this whole movie. You know what I mean? Like have you yeah. ever just watched it and really kind of followed them?
1: Oh, that's an interesting idea. It's like, yeah, just like tracking what's their narrative the whole time because it's yeah. it runs throughout the whole thing. It's like they've um they've somehow stumbled into the most like perfect corner of uh, uh of of what they're looking for.
0: Yeah. As with a lot of things in this movie, I always sit there going, what brought you to this point? Like how did the Dashers get into these liquid eyeliner injections and you know this beauty is crime photography and hairdressing like how did that happen did you go to cosmetology school at any point right
1: Right, yeah, like, at what point did the car veer off the road and go, well, we could put this on our eyes, or...
0: hmm Yeah. Well, and also, like, on that same token, like, I think about Edith Massey's character in this, and I'm like, you were neighbors with Don Davenport. How did you not know who each other were? Like, at what point did Don Davenport not see all this Edith Massey... Walking down because I mean, it took her a while to descend those stairs. We saw, right? Right, you know, there's, a, like, there's a chance you'll catch her. Yeah, she makes an entrance. Let's just say that it right. seems like she screams a lot, and <laughs> that was not a veiled weight joke. I mean, I am of size myself, but what I'm saying is like, I just can't believe that these two people weren't on each other's radar given their proximity,
1: right? Right, and I, yeah, I, I it's those things where I'm like, okay, well, I, I feel like there was something. Oh, you know what? I was watching, um. I for the first time I finally saw Deep Red, the Argento mm-hmm. movie.
0: Have you seen that? I don't believe I have.
1: Oh, it's great! It's so good. I think it's the one he did right before Suspiria, mm-hmm. and so good. And yet there are moments like a you know any other like Jello film where you are like okay, that doesn't make any sense. But you're like, okay, I am not here to make sense of this. They need to do this so that they can do what they want to do stylistically. Like I completely. I, I, make the same exceptions where I'm like, okay,
0: okay, I get it. Like if I look too deeply, this whole thing's going to fall apart. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's like, I shouldn't uh, look too much at the man behind the curtain in this whole situation. Right. But then there's that part of me that like, I feel like at the same time, John
1: Waters being such a perfectionist, it's like, well, you almost, okay, like, where does he draw the line, right? Like, does he say, oh, that doesn't make sense logically in the story? You know what I mean? Like, where is he not a perfectionist?
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing, because I feel like John Waters, in a lot of ways, was saying, you know, fuck these conventions and story. Fuck, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, he was always subverting things, and he was always kind of leaving, leaning into the irreverent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's true. I guess it's kind of like... Uh... Yeah, it's like, yep, I, that's that's the rules of this movie. That's the rules yeah. of this universe, yeah. Um, exactly. Like, no, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't need to. Right, right. Um, and yet I feel like th- at the same time, what's So about it is how by the end, like Dawn's execution, it's all kind of profound. I mean— some of it was reminding me of Dancer in the Dark, the Bjork movie, mm-hmm. and like oh, completely right, like just feeling like this very conflicted sense about all of this, and um, and and this weird like Dawn's final speech before like
0: the freeze frame is, um, it's it's like weirdly powerful completely no and that's the thing and I mean they're completely stripped down just like tied to an electric chair Mm -hmm. just you know screaming out to anybody that would hear them and kind of giving their manifesto yeah I feel like those are this is the moment in the movie where you're really getting John Waters whole manifesto about what you've just watched
1: right right and like that you've like this idea that that somebody has is kind of at the apex of their of their dreams in this moment it's like he somehow found the like most perfectly awful moment.
0: Well, that's the thing. And I mean, I think John Waters in this moment was kind of ahead of the curb in talking about the celebrity of, you know, criminals and killers. Mm-hmm. He himself was a friend of, you know, some of the members of the Manson family. And even like in interviews, like he has clarified, he's like, you know, I don't love Charles Manson. I think he should burn for what he did. But I feel like he tricked these people, you know, mm-hmm. and John Waters used to visit them in prison and, you know, really got to know them. Like he dedicated this movie to uh, Tex Watson from mm-hmm. the Manson family. Right. which he later apologized for recently oh, uh, interesting yeah because you know he kind of understands the optics of the whole thing but John Waters always had this really fierce interest in true crime and it even comes out too like he talks about Richard Speck a lot in this uh, movie and Richard Speck actually had a really interesting story himself because after he was put in jail he actually ended up transitioning uh, to give sexual favors to ingratiate himself with other prisoners uh, wow yeah it's it's a very kind of interesting moment in true crime but john waters having been interested in this whole world kind of was thinking about this stuff and thinking about the celebrity that people were making out of killers before anybody else was Mm -hmm. and even back in his old movies like i think it's in multiple maniacs he took credit for the manson murders they hadn't been caught yet so at no point did they know who committed the tate la bianca murders right and it wasn't until after the movie came or while the movie was coming out they caught the manson family and he was like oh shit we have to add in stuff now because right. he wanted people to think oh maybe it was divine and the dreamlanders who killed sharon tate and all those people wow. Um, wow but it's just interesting how this interest in true crime has kind of like fed into his storytelling in all these ways and female trouble in a way is kind of a love letter to that interest
1: Serial mom kind of being my other um, sort of strongest reference for John Waters, I feel like, like extending it to that movie where it becomes like, in some ways, like, you are watching, you know, you're watching a crime drama, you're watching, I mean, it comes down to like, it becomes a courtroom drama by the end.
0: Totally. Well, and it's interesting because in that way, I think Serial Mom is a bit of an amalgamation of the John Waters movies that have brought us to that point. Because in Pink Flamingos, they completely break down good taste. And then in the rest of the movies, you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, this is a world where good taste doesn't exist. Cool. Got that. Mm -hmm. Female Trouble, you're kind of like... Crime is beauty. You're flipping all that on its head. We're kind of in that world. And then you go to polyester. And I've always found polyester to feel more like a police procedural. Like, Mm. it's almost a little bit more dry than some of the other John Waters movies in that way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I feel like Serial Mom then kind of amalgamates all of that and kind of gives you a component of, you know, the distasteful the crime is beauty the kind of procedural thing and then we kind of throw it in this suburban kind of desperate living situation
1: yeah oh that's interesting yeah it really does kind of like cover all of those and in a way it's like you're I mean uh yeah you're kind of getting a sampler it's even even more accessible sampler of John Waters like I feel like if female troubles too much for somebody serial mom is like the perfect entry point
0: totally it's like he kind of worked his way up to you know mainstream palatability until he got to hairspray
1: yeah so because okay,
0: that's like an era of john waters i'm not terribly
1: familiar with is like when it gets to hairspray is it uh, how far i mean i'm assuming it veers pretty far from like i'm thinking of, like hairspray crybaby like that era like veers far from this aesthetic or this like level of gross or am i totally wrong
0: I don't think you're wrong. I think at this point, John Waters was at establishing himself a little bit more in the mainstream. So I think he was kind of making strides to be a little bit more palatable in that way. Mm -hmm. I think he was somebody because, like, let's call it what it is. John Waters grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth in a lot of ways and was a very rich little white boy who, you know, had a family that funded a lot of his films early on. John Waters had the space to be this trashy bohemian because he had that safety net. You know, huh. there is that entitlement that comes with John Waters.
1: Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. And yet,
0: like, that archetype is so, like, that's everywhere in New York, you know? Totally. Well, and I feel like that's kind of why he leans into, you know, trash and distaste so much, because he's kind of lambasting what he had been raised on. Mm-hmm. And kind of rejecting that early on. So by the time that Hairspray and Crybaby rolls around, I feel like he's somebody, you know, given that you know, biographical note, I feel like he's somebody that understands that to sometimes rock the world, you have to get on the inside and change shit from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what he was doing with those movies. And as a result, like, I'm with you. I don't really... I haven't really rewatched those movies as much.
1: Yeah, and that makes sense, right? It's like you make a movie that, like people will go see it's like you you want to get them in the door you want to get them in the seats to see what you have to say
0: at the end of the day like Hairspray really is a story about race relations and in Baltimore and body positivity and you know all of these really kind of subversive things Mm -hmm. yeah and it's funny because it's like there's
1: there's certainly like a body positivity message in female trouble as well I mean obviously Edith Massey is just like you know embodying that and it's ways to
0: like It's two very different and equally powerful ways to, like, tell that story. Totally. Well, because, I mean, let's go back to Edith in the Mirror. I mean, where she's just... Feeling, And I don't even know if she's putting lotion on herself. I really just think she's feeling herself and just yeah. kind of relishing in her own beauty. Yeah. And at no point, like we were saying, is she self-conscious and pointing it out or going, am I too fat or anything like that? Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, the first time that you hear anybody talk about her, it's Gator going, come on, and ida Oh, yeah, you look hot. Like
1: Yeah. And then when she <laughs> says, I just feel more comfortable, like it's just like. Oh, my I, God. I don't know. I feel like it's, uh, again, yeah, it's such a a very rough around the edges, um, left of center way of having a body positivity message. But I
0: feel like it's more
1: effective than the on the nose like
0: dove ads. You know what I mean? Well, totally, because this is also body positivity shown in a way that is not very polished. It's not very smoothed out. It's you see the lumps and the bumps of Edith Massey. Yeah. You know, John Waters really kind of relishes on that. And he puts the camera right in on it. And you are forced to just accept it. Yeah. Even before you hear her talk.
1: I don't know. I mean, to say he's celebrating her feels a little bit too much, but he's not making
0: a fool of her, you know. Well, I I feel like you are onto the right track with saying celebrating her because one of the things about John Waters that he was able to do uh was bring people in and bring performances out of them that were not Mm self-conscious you know in a situation where it would be very easy to be self-conscious and go i'm the butt of the joke he was very disarming in a way that made someone like edith feel comfortable with going there despite you know her initial kind of trepidation about the whole thing so like there's some kind of magic there too you know yeah yeah exactly yeah like what he does like the space he
1: creates Um, which, which brings me to the question of, you know, we are moving into 2020 and I feel like John Waters, it feels like a time in which John Waters could not make movies like this again, but needs to make movies like this again. You know what I mean?
0: I agree. Yeah. No, I totally hear you there. Like I, there's
1: so many moments in this where there is that, that sort of deep sense of like, Oh God, like could never get away with that today, you know? And I don't want to like knock that because like that sentiment the other side of that sentiment sentiment is there's a lot of people who aren't made to feel so awful anymore when they watch something you know um Mm -hmm. but i feel like there is some fine line that we have not found of you still have to push some buttons and that's different from like digging your finger into people's wounds i think there's a difference
0: Totally. Well, and I think people these days are very used to seeing folks who aren't used to being on camera be on camera. Mm -hmm. But we, I I think through the machine that is reality TV, we've also learned from our mistakes in such a way that there, you know, is a certain level of kid gloves that people keep with these people. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to think about, you know, creating a movie in the way that John Waters did these days because there was that almost exploitative component Mm -hmm. to it like you you know regardless of what his bedside manner was and so yeah like i I don't know i feel like it would be really hard to be able to do that these days without people kind of standing up and saying like hey you're exploiting these people you know
1: yeah yeah Yeah. like I, i feel like now the it seems like i'm sure there's things that i'm just not even aware of but of what i am aware of it seems like the spaces where this kind of quote unquote like dangerous art is happening is like in drag like I think Dragula is a great sort of peek into people doing you know when I think of people doing like the filth look you know and like doing filth adjacent looks and floor shows it's like oh okay this is pushing some of the same buttons for me and that you're forcing me to confront something in an interesting way
0: Totally. But even with Dragula, we're running into, you know, performers not being able to fully express themselves oh, with you know, yeah. bodily fluids in the way in which they would like to. Mm-hmm. So with that said, it's like, you know, I'm kind of of the same mind, too, where I would love to see somebody in a John Waters situation where they can produce and release their own work, you know create work that pushes those buttons again and yeah. you know it just has this free form expression that's not going to be censored by standards and practices
1: yeah yeah and it's it, it's interesting to think about like what what are the what are the what's the female trouble of 2020 i guess is what i'm trying to say you know like oh and I don't even know the answer to that would be. It's kind of like what what could be done today that would hit those same notes of like,
0: ooh, I feel that deep sinking feeling in my stomach, you know? Oh my god, I'm just getting flashes of seeing kids vaping in a bathroom. Like <laughs> Dawn Davenport's eating a like <sighs> eating a oh yeah, what are kids eating today? Oh, yeah, gogurt. A fidget yeah. spinner. Dawn Davenport's eating a <laughs> fidget spinner writing in class. And she's been passing notes. <laughs> And she's been texting notes. Yeah. Oh, completely. That would be it. Yeah, that's the upgrade right there. Oh my god. Yeah. And you could just keep Aunt Ida's lines all the same, and it would still work today. That
1: that is a great point. Is I think that that is also what resonates is that Aunt Ida that still that those jokes exactly you could make you could write this today. Mm -hmm. You
0: literally have a moment where she's going. Well, I wish you could be a female impersonator. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah, my God, she would be making his tape for Drag Race if Aunt
1: Ida existed right now. Oh my God, no, that would be the yeah, that would be the 2020 remake of Female Trouble. Is Aunt
0: Ida like making the the audition tape? Completely, yeah. she would be making a replica of her outfit for Gator because she'd be yes. like, "There's gonna be a makeover challenge now, Gator." <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> And I'm gonna be the most beautiful drag queen. Oh God, this is this is the world I want to live in. Where is this oh my movie? God. I know. I want to look up my back window and see Edith Massey in that outfit throwing trash off of her porch. <laughs> you know, I want her to flip me off. You know? Oh please! Oh God, no! Throw acid in my face, Edith. Why yeah, not? right. I'll pay. No one else that's listening. I never want to put that out onto the internet. <gasps> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me be clear, Edith yeah.
1: Massey. Yeah. yeah. You don't want
0: CNN being like that. Podcaster invited an acid attack. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'll
1: I'll be canceled, which is going to be almost as terrible, you know? I'll
0: show up at your door and be like, Colin, I'm staying on your couch during recovery. Thanks for opening me up to this. Yeah. Sisties and besties. Yeah, right.
1: Got a lot of dressings here.
0: I know, right? A lot of female trouble on this face. It's going to be just like when Dawn gets revealed.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. What is it? What's the line that the nurse says? Now, like, um, well, I love it when she says, now, here she is, a real- hideous hunk of meat or something like that the nurse has like one of the best lines in the movie and i'm completely oh, I'm blanking. blanking on it too uh it's like i feel like those <clears throat> kind of like ernie or sally like there's these people or like the girl in the class with the the meatball sandwich these people who have one or two lines and like that's like Again, that's oh the role god. I want to be. You know,
0: or Ernestine lamenting for dawn at the end in the prison cell. her oh, as a yeah. Girlfriend. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. That like,
1: it was it, it, that was where I was like, man, this I am getting full. Dancer in the dark, like Catherine Deneuve trying to get her, her glasses last minute. Like that, this is bringing me back to that awful movie.
0: Oh, totally. No, and that moment, too, that was Elizabeth Coffey, who in Pink Flamingos was the person who was the uh, trans woman in the gazebo that David Lockery exposes himself to. And then she kind of flips it and is like, oh, you want to show me your junk? And then, you know, that whole moment. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, so basically a week after that scene was filmed, uh, she went forward, you know, with a a bottom surgery Mm -hmm. and basically ended up, in Female Trouble, you know, wanting to be recast and they put her in this role as Dawn's girlfriend at the very end, but she performs wa- this moment in the movie that is just pure human connection and emotion. Yeah. It's almost like all of the artifice just drops away at this moment.
1: Yeah. No, it's true. I feel like everything in like in the prison, like I been, you know, the the I think part of the dance in the Dark Illusion or the way I'm, or these the reason that's resonating is like oh, this just gets real, real. Like, yeah. she is on death row. And it's – I mean, I admire that. I feel like that's – I think that's just, like, a great tactic in general if you want to make an impact is you get, like, bring people in laughing and feeling good and then, like,
0: sledgehammer them, you know? Completely. Well, and that's really what John Waters does with this whole movie.
1: I love this. I – thank you for suggesting this. I really – I feel like I needed to – um I needed to really kind of like have some receipts on my love for Edith Massey. Oh, you're
0: very welcome. I mean, like when you are feeling down and out, you can just imagine her wrapped up like a present in that birdcage. Oh, with that. Oh, yeah. Getting her hand chopped off. You know, she was actually, they only had one coat of wrapping for that. So she had to stay like a real trooper in that birdcage for five hours wrapped up while they shot the whole scene before. Oh, shit. God. And she never complained. No, of course not. Of course she no. didn't. Yeah. She no. was probably just like, I just like hearing the movie. Yeah. 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 Like, I just
1: like being here on set. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, rest in power, Miss Massey. Yeah. I
0: know. Oh,
1: we hardly knew ye. Right, right. But anyway, well, thank you, thank you for bringing bringing this into my orbit. Oh, you're um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, now, if uh, folks want to find more of you,
0: uh, where where how does that happen? Well, you can find me every Wednesday on my podcast. That's spooky. Uh, isn't it great that two gay guys with a podcast put a double S in the title? I'm it, it's. Is- We're (laughs) slurping like a, chirping like a bird over here. No, so you can find me on that Spooky. We are on all podcast platforms. We are at that Spooky Pod on all social media. And I don't think I advertise it on there, but my personal handle is at Pansy Twist on Instagram. So that's Pansy Like the Flower and Twist Like the Dance Move. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a fun little cocktail. It's Uh, where (laughs) it comes from. It's actually the first gay punk song I ever heard. Really? Pansy Twist by Huggy Bear. Yeah, it's a song, this like whole punk song where this dude's just like my boyfriend and singing about how cute he is wow uh, yeah so that's uh that's me on instagram just queer in the internet yeah, One well, screen name at a time. Somebody's got to do it, for God's sake. Yeah, and you um, know what? move over, Jonathan Van Ness. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. No, I'm right. Kidding. Yeah, tosses yeah.
1: invisible long hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I do the same thing every day. Um, <laughs> and of course, uh, you all know if you want to find more of me, if you want to reach out to me, if you want to send your feedback or your thoughts at edith massey or really anything else because i'll answer uh you could just drop me an email at in the details pod at gmail.com uh you could follow me on twitter at Colin Drucker or on instagram at Colin Drucker underscore uh you can also hear me on uh best supporting podcast queening out about best supporting actresses with nick kachanov or all right mary queening out about drag queens and drag competition reality shows with johnny and i think that's everything for the moment um That's all for now. Uh, Johnny, thank you again for joining me for this celebration. Um, And I'll be back real soon for another deep dive into more magic and the minutiae and acting choices and nuances and acting choices. I don't know if I said acting choices, but acting choices.
0: Goodbye. (laughs) Say acting choices one more time. Acting choices. (laughs) You got the part. (laughs)